Some of you may uh, have seen the book in the, in the bookstores. Um, maybe you've even read it by Mitch Album, who's a sports writer, but also a, a book writer. Five People You Meet in Heaven. Um, anybody seen that book in the bookshelves? Okay, a few of you have been to Barnes & Noble in the last few years. and uh, It is a bestseller, Five People You Meet in Heaven. Uh, and I, I haven't read the book. I, I doubt that it's very useful, but I think it's a very interesting title. Uh, that's why I've remembered it, even though I haven't read it and it's been out for four years. It's a catchy title. Uh, I think one that makes people want to pick it up and, and read it, especially people uh, who are somewhat interested in spiritual things but don't really have any spiritual grounding because they may think, after all, what is heaven like? And what kind of people do you meet in heaven? We've all heard people, maybe even some of us have said things like, I think we're going to all be surprised when we get to heaven and we find out who's there. As though there were, there were going to be just all the people that we never thought would be in heaven and none of the people that we thought would be. And to some extent that may be true. There are going to be people there whom we didn't think would be there. Think about the thief on the cross and just imagine him growing up in the lifestyle that he apparently led and perhaps there were some boys or some young men who had known him in their earlier days and then lost contact through the years. Imagine what they might say when they get to heaven and see him there. You are here? How did you get here? The same way as everyone else, of course, through trust in Christ. So there will be some of that going on in heaven. But overall, when you look at the Scriptures, there isn't as much guesswork as sometimes people make it out as though there were. We're not going to get to heaven and be all that surprised because the Bible makes it pretty clear, doesn't it, what kinds of folks are headed to heaven. Think about passages like Matthew 25. And it describes what these people look like who are going to heaven. It says, Jesus says, in fact, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was in prison and you came to me. All these things that he says will characterize his sheep. That's pretty simple and pretty clear. And sometimes, on the other hand, the Bible makes it very clear as well what the people look like who aren't going to heaven. And the Bible often paints these people in mocking, satirical fashion. And one of those passages that seems almost to mock at unbelievers is Proverbs chapter 26. I call it three people you don't meet in heaven. I read this passage a few weeks ago and that's just the title that occurred to me. Three people you don't meet in heaven. At least three people you won't meet in heaven if they remain as they are described here. Three kinds of people who won't be in heaven unless they turn from their folly and give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just point them out to you uh, in broad strokes, and then we'll look at them in the next three weeks. First is the fool, verses 1 through 12. The fool. Verses 13, the sluggard. And then 17 through 28, the big mouth. The fool, the sluggard, and the big mouth. Now let me just go back and read you a couple of verses from each one just to kind of epitomize what these folks are like. First of all, the fool. Look at verse 6. He cuts off his own feet and drinks violence who sends a message by the hand of a fool. In other words, there are certain people that you can't even trust with your mail. Verse 11. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And I think that teaching is pretty clear to us all. There's the fool, then there's the sluggard. Look at verses 13 and 14. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard 
on his bed. And then the big mouth can be summarized maybe in verses 20 and 21. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. And these, these uh, verses, these 28 verses, go into great detail about the fool, the sluggard, and the big mouth. Now it's interesting, just as an aside, uh, that in Proverbs 26, these people that you don't meet in heaven, these people that the Bible, Bible mocks and scorns, when you read this chapter, and when you read many places in the Scriptures like this chapter, you don't find always the Bible mocking and scorning the people that we might look at in our culture and mock and ridicule. We as Christians tend to want to ridicule uh, people who do the big obvious sins, the drunkards, the adulteresses, the sexually immoral, and so on. And the Bible does speak against those people. But when we turn to passages like Proverbs 26 and so many other places in the Scriptures, we find that the Bible oftentimes mocks the very kind of people that can be found in every church. In almost every church, you can find the fool and the sluggard and the big mouth, especially in our age where there's very little accountability going on between believers. And so I think we need to take that to heart, that the Bible doesn't just call us to examine and judge those who have the big obvious cultural sins. But these could very well be church people that God is ridiculing. So the fool, the sluggard, the big mouth, it seems like an odd place for us to go on, on missions week. But I found, as I looked through this chapter a few weeks back, uh, that this middle section about the sluggard, verses 13 to 16, in particular, seems to have quite a, a clear application as it relates to missions. In other words, the reason why some folks don't get excited about missions is because they're spiritually sluggards. The reason why some people don't give as they could or pray as they could or go as they could, is because spiritually they're like the sluggard that we're going to read about here. So, we're going to find out tonight what the sluggard is like in verses 13 through 16. We're going to find out in general what a sluggard is like and make some general applications to everyday life for us. But I also want to take these principles about sluggardliness, sluggishness, sluggishness, laziness, and apply them to spiritual laziness, in particular to laziness or sluggardliness in the cause of world missions. So let me read to you verses 13 through 16. I hope that none of these verses will sting initially, but we'll try to go back and make that happen for you in just a few minutes. Verse 13, the sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Four things that Solomon here says about the sluggard, the lazy man. And I just want to go through these verses and point them out to you. Apply them to you and then apply them to the cause of world missions that we're on about this week. Number one, verse 13, the sluggard has unfounded fears. 
The sluggard has unfounded fears. You almost might say the sluggard makes up things to be afraid of. The sluggard says there is a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. Now let me paint the scene for you. Perhaps uh, Solomon has in, in mind a potter who is working at his wheel into the evening, the time of day like this when it's still uh, perhaps men are at work or coming home from work, but it's already gotten dark, and this potter is sitting by his wheel working, and his servant is perhaps over by the fire warming his feet, which lets us know already that the servant is a sluggard because he's not working anymore either. But the man is working at his wheel, and eventually... As may happen to you if you're making pottery, the water begins to get used up and run dry. And so he turns to his servant and he says, hey, would you run down to the town well and fetch us some water? It seems simple enough. But his servant turns to him and says, it's dark outside. And you know, for all we can tell, there may be lions out there. They could eat me. I can't go out there in the middle of the night. Now, never mind the fact that lions prowl out in the, the, the out country, not in the open square in the city. But that's what this man is saying. There could be lions in the street. I can't go out there. They might eat me. It's ridiculous, but that's what Solomon presents to us. Now, is this man really afraid of lions? Or is the lion just an excuse for him to continue warming his tootsies? It's just an excuse, isn't it? He's making up something to be afraid of so that he doesn't have to work. I'll give you a more contemporary example. This, this sluggard is like the teenager whose dad leaves for work in the morning. There's only one teenager here, so we're not picking on you, Justin. Um, but he is like the teenager who leave, whose dad leaves for work in the morning and says, make sure that you cut the grass today. And it's summertime, and the boy looks out the window, and he says to himself, it's July. And in July... For all I know, I could be out there and a thunderstorm could bubble up before I know it and I could be struck by lightning and die. And so he goes the whole day with this lightning storm in his mind and never goes and cuts the grass. That's the first characteristic of the sluggard. And I'm sure you'll make good use of that. If, if your parents weren't here, you would have an easier time with it, wouldn't you? Um, the sluggard makes up things to be afraid of. He makes up things to be afraid of so that he won't have to do any work. Really, he's afraid of work. That's the real issue. Now, let me, on, on a more um, normal way of thinking, kind of everyday fears, plain, say to you that some of us are sluggers as well. We may not say that there were lions in the road or that maybe I'm going to get struck by lightning. Uh, but how many people do you think yesterday were at work in the city of Cincinnati and uh, were fooling around on the Internet and, and saw that there was snow coming in? And before the first flurries ever hit the ground, which was quite after the workday was over last night, they said to themselves at 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon, it's coming a storm. I've got to go home. I can't stay here. I might get caught on I-75 and be in a wreck and die. No doubt there were people that did that. And no doubt some of you may have 
at least had that thought run through your mind if you were at work yesterday. What about the folks who get a little bit of a sore throat and they call in sick to work and tell themselves the whole office could get sick and get pneumonia? I'm really doing them a favor. Now, these things are a little more close to home, aren't they? But the sluggard is a person who's afraid to work. And so if he can think of something to be afraid of or some excuse, then he presents that so that he doesn't have to work. How easy it is to believe that there are lines in the street when there's work to be done. Now, I want to say to you that this isn't just true in the workplace or in the schoolhouse. It's also true on the spiritual plane as well. You've heard people say to you, I can't come to church with you. Why not? Because the people down there might see that I don't have any presentable clothes and they'll all be staring at me. That's not why they don't come to church. They don't come to church because they don't want to. Maybe you've said, at least in your mind, I don't think I can share the gospel with her because she might not ever speak to me again. Or he might get really angry with me. Or I might get in trouble with my boss for sharing the gospel at work. I can't send my kids to the mission field. They might be eaten by cannibals or lions if they're in Africa. I can't send my kids to the mission field. Someone might throw them in jail. They might go and take my grandkids over there and my grandkids will grow up not knowing how to be Americans and then they'll try to come back here for college and be all weird and people won't know how to react to them. All sorts of things that people make up so that they don't do what God wants them to do. I can't give very much to this missions offering. I don't know when I'm going to lose my job. I mean, the economy's not great right now. I can't give too much to this missions offering. What will I do if I don't have a rainy day fund? Anything could happen. I can't go and be a missionary myself because the climate would be too cold or too hot or the food would probably make me sick and I wouldn't be a good missionary because I wouldn't eat their food or the people might persecute me or my, my parents might be really upset at me for taking the grandchildren away from them and they could die of a broken heart without having their grandchildren here. I can't even, I can't even go to this missions interest meeting about this trip to Central Asia this Sunday because... I don't even know if I could go on a long plane flight like that. So I just blow it off. I won't think about it. All sorts of ways that we can make up fears, make up things to be afraid of, instead of just doing what God is calling us to do. And we can be spiritual sluggards. So ask yourself, just as we get started tonight, am I a spiritual sluggard? Am I dreaming up things to be afraid of so that I can have an excuse for being spiritually complacent? Am I dreaming up things to be afraid of so I can maintain spiritual complacency? The sluggard has unfounded fears. Secondly, the sluggard fritters away his days. Verse 14, the sluggard fritters away his days. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. So you have the first kind of sluggard who makes things up to cover up the fact that he's just lazy. Now you have the second kind of sluggard who doesn't care if anybody knows that he's lazy. He's just willing to stay in bed all day until noon and then get up and do nothing probably for the rest of the day either. This guy doesn't need a lion to be in the square. He's going to stay in bed no matter what. Now the kind of person Solomon is speaking about here is, is not simply the person who sleeps too much or who sleeps too late, or who goes to bed too early, or whatever it is. It's not about sleep mainly. He's 
talking about the kind of person that just fritters away their life, wastes their time doing a whole lot of nothing. And so he says, as the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his head. We might say, in our culture, as the deer stares into his headlights, so does the sluggard into his television set. There are some people who just sit and are fixated on nothing for hours and hours and hours of their week. Or, if you're not into television, another proverb that I thought of this week was, as the leaves flit to and fro and end up falling to the ground dead, so the sluggard flutters from this thing to that without ever getting anything accomplished. You know anybody like that who's always moving about doing this and that and the other thing, but they don't do anything? They're busy bodies or they're easily distracted and they just piddle, pitter, uh, piddle around. Now, this happens in two different ways. There are some people who just fritter away their life. Uh, they have work to do and they just simply won't go and do it. And if that's you, uh, then let the shoe fit you and wear it. However, I think a larger group of people who fritter away their life are people who just don't have any plans. They don't have any obligations. They don't have any attachments. And therefore, they just coast and do nothing because they have nothing to do because they've made no plans. Think about a few of them with me. There's the old lady who knows all the characters on Days of Our Lives. Because she does nothing but sit in front of the TV all day. There's the old man who goes out into his backyard and tinkers with the same birdhouses every single day because he has nothing worthwhile to do with his life. There's the single guy who's on a first name basis with all the different people that work at Blockbuster because he has nothing better to do with his life than to stare at movies. There's the couple who are constantly remodeling, redecorating, refurbishing every couple of years. They don't have any way to spend their time or their money. There's the young family whose children know the sitcom characters better than they know their own parents because their family activity is to sit on the couch like the Simpsons, watching the Simpsons and frittering away their lives. There's the mentally perplexed fellow who spends all of his days flipping through the magazines and dreaming about all these antique cars that he'll never have the money to buy and doesn't even have a driver's license to drive. They're sad characters. People who have nothing better to do, they might as well just follow the fellow in verse 14 and stay in their bed. So many people have nothing to do and therefore they become sluggards and they may not lie on their beds but they do spend their time doing nothing. Now, this is a reality in our world, and it's probably more of a reality in our world than it was in Solomon's world. And because it's a reality in our world, it's a mandate for us to do something about it. It may be a mandate for some of us who are like this person in verse 14, people who have a lot of free time, to stop wasting your free time. To make some plans, to get involved in some ministries, to volunteer someplace, to get together a prayer list, lest you default to staring at the food channel and reading the obituaries and having those be your main two daily activities. It happens to people. They turn 65 and their life goes nowhere. And it's a mandate for the rest of us 
to take an interest in people like this. And this is where many of us need to hear this. We need to take an interest in our parents and our grandparents as they get older. I've thought a lot about the fact that in the old days, grandparents eventually moved in with the parents and helped raise the children. That doesn't happen very much anymore. Sometimes because the grandparents don't want to be uh, living in someone else's house or the, the parents don't want their parents living with them. But that gave older people, some of you are making faces like you know what that feels like, but that gave older people um, a way to live out their final years with purpose and meaning. In our culture, older people live out, many of them live out their final years with no purpose and no meaning. And we can invite them in to our lives to have worthwhile things to be doing. Same thing with perplexed people. You may know someone in your life, maybe in your family, who is not quite all there, and they need constant guidance and they need constant help if they're going to do anything meaningful, and you can be that person that provides that for them. And I think of William Cooper, the man who wrote some of the hymns that we sing. There is a fountain filled with blood. God moves in a mysterious way. The reason he wrote those, even though he was in and out of mental uh, incapacity, is because John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and was Cooper's pastor, brought him along to visitation, to go visit people uh, in pastoral ministry. And they challenged each other to write a hymn a week. And Newton got this man out of his tiny little bedroom and at least a little bit involved in ministry so that he was productive. And he's left us some great hymns. A man who was, again, today would be locked away. We can do that for someone as well. We can do it for people who live alone, for the elderly, and so on. Some people may want to lay on their beds and do nothing all day, but some people simply do so because they have nothing better to do, and we can offer them hope. So the sluggard fritters away his life. Now let me turn to the missionary application in verse 14. What does, verse 14, what does the sluggard lying in his bed have to do with the cause of missions? Well, I think there are some obvious connections, but let me just go at it this way. If you ask this kind of person, the kind of person we've been talking about who has nothing much to do, if you ask them, what do you have to do today? Oftentimes they'll say to you something like this, well, I've got to take out the garbage because the garbage man's coming tomorrow and there's this show on the animal planet about Arctic foxes that I kind of want to watch at three and I need to go down and get the mail and so I guess I'll do that. And other than that, I don't have a whole lot going on. Now that's sad enough, but some of us I think are like that spiritually. If someone asks some of us and we gave an honest answer, what is your plan this week for Christian growth? What's your plan for yourself and for your family to make sure that you grow and involved in God's kingdom, investing in God's kingdom this week? If, if the, the true answer came out of us, some of us would give something like this. Well, if the mood strikes me, I might read my Bible. Um, if I feel like it, I might say my prayers one or two days this week. I'll probably head down to church on Sunday. Not sure if I'll be there uh, before 11, but I think I'll be there. With a spiritual plan like that, it's no wonder that so many people don't grow. And it's no wonder that so many people don't pray and give to missions. If they don't plan to do it, then they just lay in bed, figuratively at least, and some of them literally. 
No wonder some people don't pray for missions. They don't have a plan to. That's why on Sunday I urge you, if you're not already, to get the missionary newsletters that you can get monthly or quarterly from our different missionaries so that you begin to have a plan. You have a regular something coming in to you, reminding you to pray for them, perhaps reminding you and urging you to give. Make yourself a missionary prayer list. Get a copy of Operation World that I showed you on Sunday. But don't allow yourself, because you have no plans, to fritter away the time that could be spent, the money that could be spent, the energy that could be spent on the cause of Christ at the ends of the earth. If you don't have a plan, you'll lie in bed all day. So the sluggard, secondly, fritters away his life. The third verse is verse 15. And I describe it like this. The sluggard is too full to move. The sluggard is too full to move. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. What he's describing here is a person who's eaten so much and is so full that he can't do anything but sit on the couch like a beached whale. He's so full, he doesn't even feel like going back to the kitchen to get another piece of pie. And having come off of Thanksgiving week, some of you know exactly what that feels like. So you can relate to verse 15. You also can probably relate to what it feels like to be tired because you've done nothing all day. And that kind of describes this man as well. He's too full to move. Now, that can speak directly to the problem of overeating. I think we can apply verse 15 that way. Overeating steals energy from us. But it also can speak to being overfull on other things as well. It doesn't just have to be food. We can be overfull on lots of things and paralyzed because of it. And as I read this this week, I thought of uh, the, the American middle class man, family that has the luxury automobile and the manicured lawn and they just bought a new boat and they have a fancy new TV and they're paralyzed because of these things. The man spends most of his week working like the devil to pay for these things and to be able to afford insurance on these things. And then when he finally has time off on the weekend, he's got to spend most of his weekend cleaning them, tuning them up, organizing them, programming them, and so on, so that when he finally has a few hours to enjoy all of the things that he's worked for, he's so tired that he can't do it. He's just like the guy in verse 15. He's so full of what he's been pursuing that he's too tired to enjoy it, too full to move. He buries his hand in his own selfish pursuits and he's weary of even being able to enjoy them. Now, it should be pointed out as well that the man or the woman who's too full to move, whose hand is buried in his or her own dish so far that they're weary of even bringing it back to their mouth, this person is also too weary to pull their hand out of the dish and feed someone else's mouth as well. If you're too weary to even feed your own mouth, then you certainly won't be about feeding others. And that's, again, where there's a spiritual dimension to this, to this sluggishness. The person who's overstuffed with the American dream, with the pursuit of earthly treasures, with the dainties that are in his own little dish, is going to be hard-pressed to lift his hand to do good to others. And you say, well... The Indian Hill zip code has more, more charitable money flowing out of it than any other zip code in the United States. At least that was true a couple of years ago. It may still be. So how can you say that? I say that because it's just like the rich people that Jesus observed going into the temple. 
Rich people give money all the time to lots of things, but they give out of their wealth. It doesn't hurt them. They don't even feel it. They don't even notice it. But the person whose hand is buried in the dish isn't going to be the person who gives two copper coins, which is all they had, like the widow woman. In fact, the widow woman couldn't even afford a dish. Certainly couldn't have afforded enough food to make herself over full. It's a whole different perspective. This person won't give sacrificially, and they're so busy taking care of their own assets that they're too weary even to serve themselves, much less to serve others, much less to get their hands dirty at City Gospel Mission or volunteering at pregnancy care or going on the the mission trip. All these things come up for lots of people, and lots of people have to say, I've got to mow my lawn this Saturday. I've got to program my TV this Saturday. I've got to wash my car, whatever it may be. All of those things are okay things to do. But you can see the place where you can get to a point where that's all you have time for. And then you're too weary to do anything else. And there's a great then a missionary application too, isn't there? A person whose hand is buried in the American dream, in the pursuit of wealth, in building his own palaces and empires, will be so weary of feeding himself He'll have neither the energy nor the inclination to give what he ought to to missions. He may give, as the saying goes, what's left, but not what's right. He certainly won't want to leave all those things to go and live among the Udmurt people in Russia or the people of Kazakhstan or the people of Greenland or the people of China or the people of you name the place. So, the sluggard is too full to move. Are you too full on American dream type things to move overseas or to move lots of your money overseas? Fourthly, the sluggard is wise in his own eyes. He's wise in his own eyes. Verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. It's a characteristic, Solomon says, of sluggards, of lazy people that they don't want to listen to anyone because they think that they know all the answers already. Someone says to them, why don't you take that job? You need a job. Why don't you take that job? Well, they wouldn't pay me what I'm worth, and I'm not going to take a job until they're going to pay me what I'm worth. Why don't you go back to school? It would really help you if you finished your education. Well, I already know more than all half the professors anyway. We've heard people say these kinds of things. Why don't you seek counseling? You've got problems. There are people that can help you. Why don't you seek counseling? What are they going to tell me that I don't already know? I don't need to go seek some counselor. He's just going to tell me the things that I've already thought of. Why don't you get back into church? I can read the Bible just fine on my own. I don't think I need anyone to teach me. All of these kinds of things are what the sluggard says. He's too smart for his own good, and so he never ends up doing anything that would be for his own good. He's always got a reason not to. So in this case, he's not just a lazy person. He's just a sluggard when it comes to doing what's right, doing what he knows would be good for him. I wonder if any of you found yourselves in that position. It's obvious sometimes to everyone but us that we need help, but we won't seek help. Ever found yourself in that spot? Because I can handle this or because I don't want everyone knowing my problems, or because they wouldn't understand anyway, or because I already know what he's going to say. I already know what she's going to tell me. Wiser in our own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. I wonder if any of us are in that position tonight. 
pray that God would maybe open your eyes tonight to stop frittering away your life, stop maybe wasting money or languishing in depression or holding on to some sin or hiding the fact that you're not where you ought to be spiritually or whatever it is because you're wise in your own eyes and won't seek counsel. Perhaps God would awaken someone tonight to say, I need help. I need these seven men who can give a discreet answer. Now again, let me bring this discussion back around to the topic of missions. Isn't it easy to be wise in our own eyes when it comes to spending money on and going on missions? To think of all sorts of logical reasons why we shouldn't give or shouldn't go? I wonder if any of you have heard these kinds of little voices in your head. Maybe, maybe this week during missions week. Maybe in the past. Maybe you've heard the voice in your head saying, God's going to do what God's going to do. God's going to save who God's going to save. The pastor told us that, so it won't matter if I go on the mission field or not. It won't matter if I put in my offerings, really. I just let it, let it ride. God's going to do it. Maybe you've told yourself, I'm too old to be a missionary. I mean, that's for the 20-something crowd. They've got their whole life ahead of them. I could never do that. Too wise for your own good. Maybe you said to yourself this past week or in recent weeks, I can't afford to even consider going on that trip to Central Asia. That's not for me. I know that someone like me could never do that. Or maybe you said to yourself, and this is maybe the most often uh, heard, wiser than God, wiser in my own eyes than I should be, kind of missionary talk. People say, all this talk about missions. But I look around and I think there are lots of lost people right here in Cincinnati that we should worry about before we start sending all of our money overseas. And I look around and there are things right here in our church that we need to do before we start sending our money over there. Why do we need to send all this money to the mission field? Now, if you've thought any of those kinds of things, let me encourage you. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't try to be wiser than God. Hasn't God said, hasn't Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? There is no logical reason why we should take that out of the Bible. And hasn't God said to allay our fears that He will go with us even to the end of the age? Hasn't God told us in 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 8, that we should give beyond our ability? You may not know those verses. Go look them up tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Give beyond your ability. Give more than you think you can afford. Hasn't God told us, Philippians 2, not merely to look out for our own personal interests, but for those of others? All these things He's told us that undercut the wisdom that we sometimes use to keep us from going or giving. And hasn't God promised to be with us always? Hasn't God promised in Romans 8 to work all things together for our good when we get on the mission field or whether we think we're giving too much and this is going to be bad for me? Hasn't God promised to work all things together for our good? Hasn't He promised to be generous with those who are generous? 2 Corinthians 9 says that. So don't try to outwit God when it comes to missions. He's told us to give. He's told us to go. He's told us to pray. And we simply need to be about doing those things. So fourthly then, the sluggard is wise in his own eyes. Let us not be that way. 
Let me just walk you back through the four verses before we finish. Verse 13, the sluggard says there's a lion in the road. A lion in the open square. Let me ask you, if you're letting some baseless fear, some excuse really, keep you from obeying God, keep you from obeying your parents, keep you from being a faithful and hardworking employee, keep you from serving the Lord in the cause of missions. Are you making up excuses not to do what you know you ought to do? Verse 14, as the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. I ask you, are you frittering your life away? Wasting your time in front of your TV or in your easy chair or wasting your time because you don't make any plans, don't have any prayer lists, aren't involved in any ministry. The sluggard, verse 15, buries his hand in the dish. He's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. Are you too full to move? Maybe it's too full of food, but maybe it's too full of clutter. Maybe it's a schedule that's too full. Maybe it's the American dream that's making you too full. But is your hand buried in some dish or other so deeply that you can't any longer bring it back for your own spiritual good or for the spiritual good of others? And verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Have you been being too smart for your own good? Thinking of all sorts of reasons not to work hard in life, not to work hard for the Lord, not to work hard in the cause of missions. Are you guilty of sluggishness in general, in the cause of world missions, both? It's an important question to think about. Now, we spent all of our time tonight thinking about the symptoms, the disease, the problems, because that's what Solomon spends his time on. He doesn't say what the solution is. But let me just briefly mention the cure before we finish. Just two things. If you find that you're sluggardly in any of these areas, just two things. One, confess your sin. Confess to God that you've been a sluggard. And claim 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. God has sent His Son into the world to live and to die and to rise again so that we might confess our sins and be forgiven. Let's not let that offer of forgiveness lie by neglected. And he doesn't just promise forgiveness. He promises cleansing, a clean slate, so that you don't have to any longer be entangled with all the junk that you've been involved in up until this point. So number one, confess. And number two, with that clean slate, then begin Philippians 2, 12 and 13 to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Paul says, verse 12 of Philippians 2, get to work. Confess your sins. Confess that you've been sluggardly. And now get to work with whatever it is. Start to make plans. Start to make changes. Find out what God wants you to do and get about doing it. And when you get about doing it, you can know, verse 13, Philippians chapter 2, that if you're about doing it, God will be with you to give you the willpower to get going and to give you the strength to keep going. So confess your sins and then begin to work out your salvation with fear and trembling.